be ready. That is a summary statement as recorded in the Washington Post of Vice President Mike Pence's commencement address to the graduating class of Liberty University this year. They quoted him as stating that the students should be ready to be, quote, shunned and ridiculed for defending the teachings of the Bible. That's a stunning message. Perhaps it shouldn't be stunning, but it is a stunning message in light of the moral climate in our culture today. It's stunning coming from the vice president of our country, especially knowing the heat that he and his family have been under. It's stunning as we watch this culture that is running headlong into and has indulged itself in this great moral shift that we've seen over the past few years. And shame on us if we speak up or speak out about our beliefs. The Washington Post article went on to quote Vice President Pence as saying, quote, some of the loudest voices for tolerance today have little tolerance for traditional Christian beliefs, end quote. And certainly that's true. Now more than ever, we, particularly as American Christians, are facing the reality of a culture where simply being a Christian and believing as a Christian has negative implications. And it will become much worse before the end. We often discuss the costliness of discipleship, the costliness of affirming Christ, the implications of what it means to be a Christian in this moral climate. But I wonder how often we think about it the other way. What are the implications of the truths of God for humanity? What are the implications of the fact that God has provided this particular salvation for us? What does God expect from us as a result? If God, the creator God, has provided this salvation, this particular salvation, and no other salvation, if God has provided this particular salvation in the form of Jesus Christ, then what are the implications of that for humanity? What are the implications for us? How should we respond? That's what I want to think about this morning as we look at John 6. If you haven't, turn there with me. We're going to focus in on really verse 25 through 40. It's a large segment of scripture. I'll be summarizing some points, but I think we'll still benefit from focusing here today. Here Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life, the true bread sent from heaven by the Father. He is the bread of life, the bread which gives life. That's the point. We'll see three implications of this truth for humanity Number one, that God has sent us the true bread from heaven means that this bread has eternal value. He is qualitatively better than any other bread, any other provision that we could have. We'll see that in verses 25 through 27. Number two, that God has sent us the true bread from heaven means that we must look to God to know how to partake of this bread. In other words, we can't come to him in any way that we want. That's in verses 28 through 36. And number three, that God has sent us the true bread from heaven means that with this bread we have eternal security. That is a promise that we will find nowhere else. That's in verses 37 through 40. Look at the text with me starting at verse 22. And I'll read through the end. The next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered his, with his disciples into the boat, 
but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Pray with me. Our Father, again, we come before you and we give you thanks for this day that we have, for the privilege we have of gathering together in worship, in song, in prayer, around your word, together. Thank you for that privilege. As we come before your word, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, what is happening in the immediate context of John 6? At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus performs a miracle. It is a miraculous feeding of a multitude with at least 5,000 men, the text says. That means a mixed multitude could be at least triple that number, including women and children. That was a lot of people. And he did this with just five loaves of bread and two fish. There's no doubt that it was a miracle, and there's no doubt that Jesus was teaching the crowds and his disciples that he is able to supply their most basic needs. The crowds, for their part, exclaimed, This is truly the prophet who was to come into the world, in verse 14. In fact, as you continue through the chapter and you see Jesus and his disciples crossing over the lake from Tiberias to Capernaum, Jesus having walked on water, you know, he's just just taking a stroll across the water to get there. As the crowds, having been so impressed... On the next day, they searched for their own boats and crossed over the lake just to find Jesus again. That brings us up to verse 25. I'll say one more thing before we get into the text. I already mentioned that this passage holds one of the I am statements. These statements tend to have two main purposes in the Gospel of John. The first is to draw a correlation between the God of the Old Testament, 
Moses's I am who I am in Exodus 3 and Jesus himself. He is, in essence, proclaiming himself to be the God of the Old Testament, the I am, the preexistent, self-existent one. Every time he uses that phrase, that's what you need to think. The second purpose of the I am statements is to show that Jesus is a qualitatively greater fulfillment of some Old Testament illustration of God's provision. He says in chapter 8, I am the light of the world, signifying that his light actually gives life to men by setting them free from slavery to sin. Not like the lights in the temple during the celebration, which allow men to see in their spiritual blindness. He says also in chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am, signifying his eternal glory, a glory which he had before Abraham even existed, in which Abraham himself rejoiced to see. In chapter 10, Jesus proclaims himself as the good shepherd, signifying that he is a better shepherd, a better leader for the people than any of the shepherds who came before him. And there are other I am statements in John. It's a great study if you have the opportunity, but we're going to get back in our text and here again, Jesus proclaims himself as the bread of life. And as I said before, we're considering the implications of the fact that God has given Jesus as the bread of life from heaven. Now, first point again Implication number one, that God has given us Jesus as the bread of life means that he is qualitatively better than any other provision that we may have, any other bread that we may eat of, so to speak. Look at verses 25 through 27 again. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Now in verse 25, we're simply picking up where we left off in the narrative. I gave you a summary up to this point. The people are seeking Jesus after he miraculously provided for them. They sought for him and finally found him on the other side of the sea, and they asked inquisitively, Rabbi, when did you get here? That's kind of an honest question, I guess. And we've already seen evidence of Jesus' ability to know the hearts and minds of men. In the narrative of Nicodemus in chapter 3, we see Jesus answering a question that Nicodemus didn't even verbally speak. Nicodemus comes to him and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are from God. And Jesus answers, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I would have been like, where are you going with that? How did you get there? But... uh, but Jesus knew what was going on in Nicodemus's heart. I mean, John even makes that clear at the end of chapter 2. He says plainly that Jesus knows within the hearts of men. So Jesus is really just getting to the point here. He knew the issue that was in their heart, and he's addressing the issue in their heart in our text. It is an interesting question how he got there, the answer being that Jesus performed another miracle that day. That miracle wasn't really for them. It was for the disciples. But he knows that the people don't really care how he got there. They really just, what, they want to get fed again. Now, Jesus is not walking the earth today, though he will return. The same is true for us with regards to his word. In theology, we talk about this idea of conviction. When we're brought under the conviction of God's word, what we mean is that God is using the word by the spirit to speak to a particular issue in our hearts, an issue that we may or may not have verbally acknowledged. The writer of Hebrews makes this point abundantly clear about the word of God. In chapter 4, he says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And he says, and all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The word of God is that specific. It is that pointed. It is that particular in our lives as it has its way. This is why the word of God is so central to the life of the church. Some people flee when the word of God is read. Some find ways to justify themselves before its truths. Some people simply think about the other person who should be here to hear this message, right? But the mark of a true believer is humility before the word of God. It is a willingness and earnestness to hear the word of God and to respond. In John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So the question is always, do you? If you say that you are one of his, do you follow his voice? Do you respond to his word? Well, again, back to our text. Jesus is addressing the hard issue and wasting no time doing it. John 6, 26, Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God, has set his seal. You seek me not because you saw signs. What is Jesus talking about there? Signs are basically referring to miracles that would have attested that a man was from God. Just as in the New Testament, the Old Testament miracles were always in confirmation of the fact that God is at work. They saw a sign in the feeding of at least 5,000 men, but they didn't really see the sign. They saw the sign, but they didn't respond to the sign. One author says they didn't see what the sign signified. I like that. As they were stuffing their mouths and commenting, as we saw earlier, again in chapter 6, this is the prophet who was to come. They said that, but they were not really responding by faith. He says, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And you should see the distinction that Jesus is making there. All I had to do was give you a meal and you would follow me anywhere, he says. This is not the following of John 10. Again, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. This is the following of those who have merely had their physical appetites satisfied. One of the most stinging indictments on the world, in my view, is found in Philippians 3.19, where Paul says that those who are enemies of the cross of Christ are those whose God is their appetite. What their flesh desires is their God. He says it slightly differently in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. We covered that a number of weeks ago. When he says that we, before coming to Christ, were indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Their God is their appetite. They indulge in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. What was popularized as a soft drink slogan, obey your thirst, has become the self-help mantra, even the supreme virtue of our day. I've commented on these things before, but issues like, how do you feel you should be identified today? Do you identify as male? Do you identify as female? Something in between, something completely different. It's cool. Whatever you feel like, go with it. Just make sure that everyone knows what your preferred personal pronoun is, even if you have to make up a new one. You want to marry a man, a woman? Again, something in between, something wholly different? Go for it. It's all about how you feel. Love wins. Let's make this more personal, a little more pointed. Are you married? 
That means that you have committed yourself to a person. It used to mean for life, but nowadays, if you don't feel like loving them or they aren't lovable or they don't love you in the right way, just get rid of them. Or maybe you just feel a certain way about another person now. Surely you have to satisfy those feelings regardless of what commitments you made, right? Just go for it. That high-paying job that comes with the added cost of more hours away from home feels good to have a nice paycheck, doesn't it? Feels good to be able to buy whatever you want when you want. Well, pursue it. You only live once. YOLO. That's what the young kids are saying nowadays. I'm at that point in my life where I'm saying what the young kids are saying. I didn't even understand what YOLO meant for a while, and then like, I finally caught up with it. Um, yeah. How about faithful church attendance? How about coming to the actual service? You can only come to Sunday school, but what is that all about? I mean, really? Is church really an a la carte thing? Do you just pick and choose which parts you like? The church is the people, which is why membership is so important, why attending is so important. It's not just about your special segment that you like to come to. For that matter, how about membership in a local church, committing yourself to others around you? Do it when you feel like it or don't worry about it. It really doesn't matter. Serve when you feel like it or don't worry about it. It doesn't matter, right? It's all about how you feel. Obey your thirst. You get the picture. Their God is their appetite. They indulge in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. They seek him because their bellies are filled, not because he is good. This is a problem that plagues the hearts and minds of the unbelieving world, and they don't even know it. And yes, there's a sense in which we all struggle with this. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. God does provide generally and graciously to all of his creatures. The provisions of God, the food, the shelter, even the ability to have physical pleasure is good, but it is not better than God himself. Those who are outside of Christ do not know this, nor do they believe this. Those of us who are in Christ do know this. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and we ought to show that with our lives. Do you? Believer? Do you show that with your life? Do you show that you believe that God himself, as the gift of salvation, is better than any other gift that he gives? Again, verse 26, Jesus says, You seek me not because... You saw the sign, but because you ate and were filled. He says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Again, the provision of Jesus as the bread of life is better than any provision that we might have. If we believe this, the right response would be to show it with our lives. Do not work for the food which perishes, but, implied, do work for the food which endures to eternal life. There are two different kinds of food here. There is a perishable food, and there is a food which endures to eternal life. Clearly, in the context, the perishable food is that which we eat with our mouths, what we take into our bodies, what satisfies our physical appetites. It is what people were seeking from Jesus here in the text. But Jesus here introduces another food, a better food. It is better in that he qualifies it as the food which endures to eternal life. There is a kind of food that you can eat which perishes, and you with it. But there is another food, and this food will endure for, is the idea here, for eternal life. The food itself lasts eternally, therefore those who eat it will last eternally. For that reason, it is a qualitatively better food. It's food 2.0. Jesus says, don't work for the lesser food. 
He says, don't work for the lesser food, do work for the greater food. Don't labor and strive primarily for something to satisfy your earthly, physical, temporary appetites, but work for eternal food. They went out of their way to find Jesus because their bellies were full the last day. He says, use those energies to pursue the greater food. Now, we do have to work. If we don't work, our food's not going to miraculously appear on our tables, right? I mean, certainly, I guess it's possible, but God has not promised that, so we shouldn't presume upon God in that way. That would be foolish. We have responsibilities to provide for those who are ours in our homes. We have responsibilities to take care of our bodies, to care for them, to maintain those things, but those things are not of primary importance. We make them of primary importance when we spend hours in the gym daily just to maintain a certain physique. We make those things of primary importance when we spend hours upon hours, again, away from our families to earn enough money to have the best kinds of food, clothing, etc., again, all to satisfy our earthly appetites. And we teach our children that those things are of primary importance by constantly urging them to succeed in those areas, not matters of spiritual importance. Jesus says if you're going to labor for anything, it should be for that which leads to eternal life. Labor for eternal food. Work hard for eternal sustenance. He goes on again in verse 27. Work for the food which endures to eternal life. Well, where does this food come from, this eternal food? It comes from the hand of the Father himself. Now, just as a side, this is one of those truths that has been seen unthinkable, unthinkable, unfathomable today, that God would reveal himself as Father, not mother, not neuter, but as Father, I believe that we will spend some time meditating on this truth in the coming weeks as we continue in our study of Ephesians, so I won't go too deeply into it. But in this context, God is here pictured as the Father, as the provider of creation, for creation. That God is declared or revealed to be Father is meant to conjure up the image of an almighty, sovereign provider. God is not some aloof, wind-up-the-toy-that-is-creation-and-let-it-go-on-its-own sort of maker. He's intimately involved in his creation, and he has particularly revealed himself as father in his ultimate sovereign state. As father, God has made a decree. He's made a decision. He's made a choice, and he's handed down his choice, and that choice is with respect to his provision of eternal life. How is eternal life going to come? How is he going to give it? In what way does God choose to give eternal life? He does that in the person of his son. And his love, by his grace... As an act of mercy, the Father desires to give eternal life to some. Though we reject his fatherly, heavenly rule over us, yet in his goodness he still chooses to grant eternal life to some. And again, that's only through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one whom God has particularly chosen. He speaks of that seal. He is the one whom God has particularly chosen for this purpose. And because the Father has chosen him, to do this, the Son will do it. Again, the Son of Man will give to you eternal life, the text says, because the Father has set a seal on him. He's not going to fail to do what the Father has sent him to do. Again, there are many things that God has provided in his grace and his goodness and creation, and yet this one is greater than them all. This one provision, the sending of the Son of Man, the sending of Jesus Christ of Nazareth as the bread of life is greater than any other provision that we could ever have in this life. It is of eternal value. 
That leads us to our second point. All of what we've said so far is a foundation for what comes. Implication number one, again, that God has provided Jesus as the bread of life suggests that he's qualitatively better than any other provision. Number two, that he was sent from God means that we must look to God for guidance on how to partake of this gift. We can't come to him in any other any old way. And Jesus makes clear here that his way is by faith. Now, this is a large section, but it is a very simple truth. Look at verses 28 through 26 with me. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what then do, do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. The work of God is faith in the one whom he has sent. Again, they said, what do we need to do in order to work the works of God? This has been the pattern of humanity after the, since the fall. The desire to simply know, what do I need to do in order to please God? Let me check off the box and move on with my life. This is a summary statement for every religion that has crept up on the face of the earth. Right? What do I need to do? What shall we do, they asked Jesus. Jesus says there isn't a work that you can perform, there isn't an act that you can perform, there isn't a religious duty that you can perform. No earthly philanthropic good that you can do in order to please God. You must believe in the one whom he has sent. This is the way to please God. Take him at his word. Believe in his word. See his word revealed to us, his will revealed to us. Trust him that he is right, that this is the way, and believe in the one whom he has sent. That is the will of God. That's what pleases him. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus in a personal way and you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, that's it. Believe in the one whom our creator, God, has sent to give eternal life to the world. That's it. It's very simple. And these from the lips of Jesus himself. To not believe in him, then, is to say, God, I don't believe your word. I don't trust your word, nor your judgment about the one whom you've sent. I don't believe that it will work, that he's able to give me eternal life. You are, in essence, thumbing your nose at God's provision. You're rejecting his way. You're in rebellion. I don't believe you. I don't believe in your way. I like my way better. I and many other sincerely moral people have a pretty good system. We have a pretty good way mapped out to you. You should just accept that, God, regardless of what you've stated. I go to church most of the time. I give. I make things for the potluck. I help my neighbors mow their lawn. I protest against social injustice. I speak up for the unborn. I pay my taxes and work hard. I try to raise my children to be good little boys and girls. I'm not a murderer or a thief like that guy. That should be enough, right? God should just accept that. Jesus says that's not enough. It's not going to do it. It's not going to cut it. In fact, you couldn't do enough to wipe out the eternal weight of sin that separates you from God. The eternal weight of sin and the wages of that eternal weight of sin is eternal death, eternal condemnation, eternal separation from the goodness of God. But the free gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ alone. 
We must look to God for guidance to know how to access his provision of eternal life, this life-giving bread that he sends from heaven. What Jesus says in the passage is pretty clear, but the crowds just don't get it. And look at the rest of the section. What do you do for a sign? What work do you perform? If I were in Jesus' shoes, I would have said, are you kidding me? You're asking me about another sign? After I just fed 15,000, 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish, you're asking me for something else now. It's a good thing I'm not Jesus, right? Because, man, people, uh, whew. But they want more. Our fathers, they go on to say to justify their request, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They're saying, in essence, Jesus, you know, if you really want to convince us, just give us more of that tasty food, and then we'll believe you. You know what most people say about religion today? But most people, even some who claim to be Christian, say about religion today, my God, my Jesus wouldn't do this. He wouldn't do that. My Jesus, the Jesus who fits my concept of him, the Jesus who satisfies me, would do what everyone thinks is right and satisfy everyone's wants. Listen to the justification, again, with this new morality coming from a number of so-called Christians. One lawmaker made the bold claim that laws prohibiting abortion are against the central tenets of Christianity because, in her words, Christianity is all about free will. That's one of the main tenets of Christianity, in her view. That's not what this text says. This text says it's God's way or no way, right? It doesn't matter what you think or what you want. Or others, such as a certain official who's running as a Democratic presidential hopeful, is openly gay, married to a man, who's gone on record criticizing Mike Pence and his family for upholding traditional Christian values, biblical Christian values. His rationale is that he's a Christian, he's welcome in his church as a Christian, and that he represents authentic Christianity that is simply caught up with the times today. People will say, Jesus did not come to condemn John 3.17, neither should we condemn anyone else. Those who make such professions in order to justify themselves and embracing the new morality miss the fact that John says in the next verse, John chapter 3, verse 18, that those who do not believe are condemned already precisely because they have not believed in the name of the Son of God. If you're not a Christian, again, here this morning, and you're hearing some strong words about those who practice certain things, you're tempted to write us off as bigoted or prejudiced, understand, first of all, that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us in here need the grace of God. All of us in here need the pardon of God for our sin because we all in owe a debt to God because of our sin. Each one of us, it doesn't matter what your sin is. It doesn't matter if you create, you've sinned once or you sin every single day, which all of us do from the course, from the beginning of your life. The gospel is the great equalizer. Moreover, it is not us who condemn. If you haven't trusted in Christ, you're condemned already, not by the mouths of men, but by the word of God, by his will, because you haven't believed in the one whom he has sent. That is where the condemnation comes. Look at verse 33. The bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. This is the greater bread. This is the greater provision. It is the bread from God which gives life to the world. 
that people don't seem to get that, they don't seem to understand. That's another theme throughout the Gospel of John, where he gives us a glimpse into the thinking of humanity, that we, we have a difficult time understanding spiritual things. We lack the spiritual eyes to see. But they do seem to respond positively, Lord, always give us this bread, but do they really understand what he's asking? Is this a request from faith, or are they again desiring to have their bellies full? I think Jesus' response makes it clear. He says in 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And that gives us our answer. They say, Lord, give us this bread. Jesus says, I have. In fact, I am this bread. And the one who comes to me will not hunger. The next phrase is put in parallel. It essentially means the same thing. He who believes in me will never thirst. Those who come to him are those who believe. Those who come to him who believe will never hunger nor thirst. To these, because he is the true bread, he gives eternal life. Those who come in faith, those who believe in Jesus, he gives eternal life too. You can't get a clearer gospel message than that. But at the same time, Jesus makes it clear that they see him. This group sees him, but they have not come to believe in him. They see him. They have seen the signs, and yet they do not believe. Is it possible for someone to be under the preaching and teaching of the word of God and yet not to have faith in Christ? Yes. Is it possible for someone to be called a Christian, to profess faith in Christ, to walk long in the halls of the church, to be known as a spiritual person, a righteous person, a good person, but not to genuinely know Jesus? Yes. It is not enough to simply know things about him. It is not enough to have seen and heard about him. You must believe in him. You must trust him. You must trust the person, the man, the son of God, who is Jesus of Nazareth. You must believe in him as the one whom God has sent from heaven to give eternal life. You must believe in him exclusively. Jesus will say later in John's gospel, I am the way and the truth and the life. The way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. How's that for absolutes? And we already read earlier, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. No other name. That makes it pretty clear, right? There's no other way. Christianity is by definition an exclusivist religion. Christianity is about the Christ. It is all about the Christ. Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the one whom the Father sent to give life to the world. There is no other. Not Buddha, not Confucius, not Gandhi, not the Pope, not Mohammed nor his God, not Joseph Smith. No one but the Lord Jesus Christ has been chosen and sent by the true and living God to give eternal life to the world. I don't care what other religions say. I don't care what moral people who balk at absolutes and claims of exclusivity say. I don't care how nice your, your religious neighbor is. If they don't believe in Jesus as the one whom God has sent, they're already condemned before God, and they will not see the kingdom of God. They must believe in him. This is why Jesus must be proclaimed as Lord and Savior. He's already Lord and Savior. It doesn't really matter if people want to accept him that way. We don't care if people feel comfortable with hearing about him. It doesn't matter. If we truly cared about others, if we were truly loving, 
And those in the world who are already condemned in their unbelief will be the first whom we run to in order to proclaim this truth that God has sent a Savior, only one Savior, and that his name is Jesus. Again, if you've not trusted him yet and you hear my voice, today is the day of salvation. There's no other day promised. Today is the day. The offer is given. The truth has been heard. The truth has been proclaimed before you from God's word. Jesus is the only Savior of the world. If you have trusted him, you're busy proclaiming him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, begging men on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Begging men on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We're not begging them to, to like Jesus, right? Or to love God or to be comfortable with coming to church. We're begging them to be reconciled because they're not reconciled. There's enmity. They are already condemned before God. And so we're begging them to be reconciled. Come to Christ before it's too late. And we got one more point here. What are the implications of the fact that God has sent the bread of life from heaven? Again, this bread has eternal value. This bread must be sought after in God's way by faith. And finally, this bread gives us eternal security. Look at verses 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Here's what I want you to focus on in these passages. First, that we are eternally chosen by the Father for the Son. Verse 37, again, all, not some, not a part, not a few, not the special ones, all that the Father gives me will, not might, not maybe, not possibly, they will come to me. And anyone who comes to me, I will not cast out. Anyone who has a problem with the doctrine of election has never read that verse. All who are given will come. There's no mistaking there. The Father has given some, and they will come to the Son. And in context, we understand that to come to the Son means what? It means to believe in him. <clears throat> we are eternally kept by the will of the Father in the Son. That's the second point. Look at verse 37. The one who comes to me, I will not cast out. Verse 39. Of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is eternal security. It is eternal because we're given the eternal Son of God. The Father gives, and he does not cast, and the Son does not cast out. He rejects none of those whom the Father gives. All are accepted by the Son as a gift from the Father. And those who are accepted by the Son as a gift from the Father will be raised up on the last day. There's no doubt about it. Or what happens in between? Verse 40 says that they see him and they believe. In this passage, we have the assurance that those who are chosen by the Father in heaven will, at some point in their lives, see and believe in the Son. And the Son will keep them, even in death, and will raise them up on the last day. That will happen because it is the will of the Father. It's what the Father has decided to do. And 
Again, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Verse 40, this is the will of my father. The son never fails to do the will of his father. Our security is those who believe in him, those who trust in Jesus as the bread sent from heaven, is that it is God's will that those who believe in him be kept by the power of the son so that even if they should face death on this side of eternity, that he will raise them up on the last day. That is the promise of God, beloved. In John 10, in the context of the Good Shepherd discourse, Jesus also speaks of the eternal security of believer. Concerning his sheep, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. <clears throat> my Father who has given, to me, given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. That is blessed assurance, is it not? I like this quote. One author says, It is one of the most precious things about the Christian faith that our continuance in eternal life depends not on our feeble hold on Christ, but on his firm grip on us. We should notice that this teaching, the teaching of this verse is not that believers will be saved from all earthly disaster, but that they will be saved no matter what earthly disaster may befall them. And what else can you believe and who else can you believe where you'll find such security? Again, are you going to find it in Buddha, Confucius, the Pope, Muhammad, Joseph Smith? No one else promises this. No one else can promise it. No one else can secure it but Jesus alone. Do you believe that? That's the question. Again, perhaps you're here today and you do not know Jesus in this way. Today is the day. Trust him. Believe our creator God, our heavenly father, through him, through Jesus. Believe that God has sent Jesus to be the savior. Believe that God has sent him to keep those who are his and to raise them on the last day. And one question this passage doesn't directly answer is how? How does Jesus keep his own? How does he make it possible for those whom the Father gave to be kept and raised on the last day? Well, he died for them. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God. That's how he keeps us. That's how he preserves us. He died for us. He shed his blood on the cross for our sins for our pardon, and in doing so, wipe the debt clean that we owed so that now we are free to have the eternal life that he gives. Now we're free to be clothed in his righteousness. Now we are acceptable to God. Now we're invited into the family of God. Now we have the eternal security of God, all through Jesus Christ and through him alone. Every Memorial Day, we honor those who gave their lives for our freedom in this nation, those who sacrifice for us. There's a greater freedom that we have, a greater life sacrifice that was given in the person of Jesus Christ. And every Sunday morning, we get to celebrate that. Believer, let the truths of the gospel enliven your souls today. Let the words of praise that rise from your lips today be saturated with gratitude for this most gracious gift by the will of the Father and sacrifice of the Son. You've trusted in him and what is greater. Know that you can trust him in anything else. And proclaim his goodness among the nations, among the people, so that they too might know and believe, so that they might receive his pardon. What are the implications of the truths that God has sent his Son as the bread of life from heaven? This bread 
has eternal value. This bread can be received by faith. And this bread has eternal security. May the Lord bless our souls from these truths. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this truth. Again, as we think about those in our nation who gave their lives for our freedom, we think about the one whom you sent to give his life for our ultimate freedom, for our greater freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from the penalty of those things. We think about the Lord Jesus Christ, the one on whom you've placed your seal, and we rejoice in him. Be with us as we continue rejoicing in him this day and this week in Christ's name. Amen.